from India's largest newsroom I'm Arun George and this is the Times of India podcast A family day out Young and old flock into the Sri Lankan president's house seeing for themselves how this political dynasty has been living. The president was moved by his security team to an undisclosed location earlier, while protesters ransacked his bedroom and took photographs on his bed. Gotabaya Rajapaksa has just resigned as the president of Sri Lanka. After weeks of protests over the economy, protesters stormed the Sri Lankan presidential palace on the 9th of July. On the 15th of July, it was finally confirmed that President Gotabaya Rajapaksa, who has left the island nation, had resigned. However, that only presents another political dilemma with little clarity on who will take charge of the administration of Sri Lanka and how the economic pain of the average Sri Lankan can be eased quickly. To understand how the current political drama could play out in Sri Lanka, we spoke with Padma Rao Sundarji. Padma has been covering Sri Lankan politics for decades and is also the author of the book Sri Lanka the new country. Padma explains the biggest challenges the next president and prime minister will face. She also talks about why the Rajapaksas aren't out of the picture just yet and also the role that India can play at this time to help Sri Lanka. Padma over the last two weeks we've seen pretty dramatic scenes where the prime minister had to resign after his house was set on fire the president had to flee the country after his palace was invaded by protesters you know the kind of anger that we see in sri lanka did you see this coming well i certainly saw the anger coming not seen this kind of uh, outpouring of uh, people out onto the streets this is a uh, people actually who voted and the peculiar thing is that you know i was there in 2019 when the last elections happened and when gotabaya came to power you know there was this huge uh, groundswell of support for the rajapaksas and for their new party simply because people were fed up of the old government so from going from that euphoria of 2019 to the kind of outpouring we're seeing on the streets now which are against gotabaya is uh, you know it's like a 365 degree circle what i did not uh, want to see coming but i feared it may come is the uh, level of um, uh, anarchy and also uh, 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 vandalism uh, that we saw people are trying to brush it under the carpet now i see people saying oh it was nothing you know it was just a few scratches here and there but that is not the issue issue is that it could have reached tipping point you look mr gotabaya rajapaksa maybe have maybe a crook ranil maybe a crook they may be all crooks you know and their people have every right to uh, be angry with them but had there been had those incumbents been within those buildings at that time i shudder to think of what might have happened I think that was a dangerous thing which I uh you know um didn't really expect I tend to increasingly believe and many of the supporters themselves on the streets of the protest movement told me privately though they didn't want to be quoted that there is a hand and element of extreme left wing marxist groups behind a certain section of vandals I'm also going to just expand on this a bit but in terms of the police and army and the fact that they sort of stepped away was that a bit of a surprise 
Well, the police and army didn't exactly step aside. It's just that I think they were uh, very wary and very cautious of um, displaying any brute force or, you know, more than going beyond the tear gas and the water cannon kind of uh, repulsion of the crowds. Uh, more so because they knew that, uh, I think they were made aware of this tipping point that people are so angry that, you know, if there were even one casualty, even with a rubber bullet or something, then the whole place could have been set on fire. So I think they were being cautious and trying to sort of uh, do only the basic management of the situation. Uh, but I don't think they were particularly, I think later when the armed forces came in, uh, when, uh, you know, when the emergency was declared and the army came in and gre uh, showed a greater presence on the streets, I think they mean business. They're not going to let Sri Lanka erupt in anarchy again. They're not going to let things go out of hand, you know, beyond this point. So with Gotabaya finally stepping down as president, Sri Lanka now has an interim president in the form of Ranil Vikramasinghe. What happens now? Well, it's, you know, he's an acting president, yes. But there is uh, there was initially some confusion about which clause, according to which clause he became anti uh, acting president. There are two clauses in the constitution, Arun. One is a clause that says that if the current president is indisposed or unable to execute his duties or has had to leave the country for whatever reason, uh, then he can ask the prime minister to take over as acting president. And that clause does not actually place a date, you know, it doesn't have a deadline for by, by when elections have to happen and how long the acting president can stay acting president. Other clauses, when the president resigns, actually formally resigns, and then in that case, a date has to be set within a month for a vote, a secret ballot to be held in parliament to choose a new president. There's been a lot of, um, I think, willful confusion over the, the so-called resignation letters since the very day of the invasion of the presidential palace. Uh, since that day and since the day that Gotabaya was whisked away by the army, there has been a certain amount of playing around with this resignation letter, both on part of Gotabaya Rajapaksa, as well as on part of the speaker and the parliamentarians. Finally, now it has boiled down to a real resignation letter, which came by email, which was authenticated by the speaker. And this is under the clause resignation, which means that Ranil has a shelf life of uh, only till the time point in time when the vote is held. And of course, he will be running for president again, you know, and he will he is likely to have an upper hand uh, in this scenario, not only because he's the most experienced politician, but also because he would have already been in place for at least 10 or 12 days as acting president. So that sometimes tends to help psychologically. And he has the support of the Podujana Peramuna party of the Gotabaya Raja, of the Rajapaksas, which is still has a slim majority in, uh, in parliament. But, you know, it's early days, Arun, because there are about 40, 45 members. That, these are people who gave up supporting the uh, ruling party. Most of them are from the SL. FP, the Sri Lanka Freedom Party, which is the original party Mahindra Rajapaksa belonged to before he set up the PPP. Everybody is out to get their support over the vote. The whole big thing has turned into a game of wheeling, dealing, being hard for votes and that kind of thing. And I've been getting the impression the last two or three days that they're somewhat losing sight of the wood for the trees. You know, the biggest crisis at the moment, Arun, as you know, is the economic crisis. It is of burning urgency. So I think these are all these are, you know, political formalities and shenanigans which should really be set aside and people should just get on with the job. That's the sort of next question from me as well. 
uh, why aren't elections being held? Especially if the leaders clearly seem to have lost the mandate. Why is this sort of being extended till the next election? I was speaking to some parliamentarians yesterday and asking them the same thing. And, and they told me that the reason that the elections cannot uh, be held now is because the parliament has to volunteer to dissolve the election. That's when you can have a snap election. And neither the speaker nor the PM nor the president are authorized to do that. As far as the presidential power to dissolve the parliament is concerned, he can only do that after March next year. Also, they're not really in a position to hold elections right now. I mean, they have no money. So uh, I don't think it's a very wise thing because even a snap election will cost a lot of money. Uh, there's no doubt of that. So I think that's another thing that's holding them back. In terms of the new president being picked, even once a new president is picked, wouldn't the Rajapaksas, in a very indirect sense, continue to hold influence over that, given their party still has the majority in parliament? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's no doubt of that. I also remember an interesting thing, which I can tell you that, you know, uh, I did uh, an interview with uh, Mr. Namal Rajapaksa, the son of Mr. Mahinda Rajapaksa, who was in the same cabinet as sports minister, who also resigned along with all the other Rajapaksas. And I did this last month when I was covering uh, the crisis. And at that time, he said something very interesting. Uh, he said that, you know, that big victory in 2019 of my uncle Gotabaya would not have happened without the groundswell of support for Mahinda. And I actually agree with him. It was not Gotabaya who came to power on his own steam, you know, because Gotabaya did not have a voter base. He'd never run for elections in his life before. It was Mahinda who had the support of, you know, people, ordinary people on the streets and farmers, very rich farmers from the rich farming belt of Ammantota. So the support in many ways came for Mahinda Rajapaksa. And even till today, uh, people say that he knows what's going on. He's sort of controlling the party and seeing he's overseeing whatever's happening, even though he's not been keeping in very good health. Mahinda Rajapaksa is very much uh, in the shadows and he's very much uh, in charge of that party. So the Rajapaksas continue to have this sort of influence, but at the same time, uh, you know, we saw that Mahinda Rajapaksa and his brother Basil were prohibited from leaving Sri Lanka. Uh, do you see a sort of public return of politics for the Rajapaksas? Or is it in the hands of the next generation in some ways? The face of the family and the founder of the party and the man who actually has the as support on the ground is Mahinda Rajapaksa. There's no doubt of that. Everybody knows that in Sri Lanka. Uh, now, whether Mahinda Rajapaksa himself, after all, he's also, you know, quite elderly, so uh, and he's not been keeping in very good health. So whether he himself will return to active politics, most people say, mm, you know, it's unlikely, he's not likely to return to politics. But I don't know. I've met him many, many, many times and I've observed him from close quarters and he is an absolute political animal. And I say that in a in neither a negative nor a positive way. I mean, it's just that he is, he has politics coursing through his veins. So somebody like that, I find difficult. I find it a little hard to say that look, he's not going to be back in politics actively. I doubt that very much. Maybe he won't campaign so much, you know, if his health doesn't allow him. But I don't think he's going to actually leave that commandeering role and in fact, who knows if his health improves, I don't rule out his coming back to politics. Uh, the other person I see as definitely sticking around in politics is Namal, his son. It's an open secret. They've said that we're not going anywhere and we are going to be very much around in politics. 
will they ever mean will the sri lankan public ever vote them back you know what i will not be surprised at all mahindra rajapaksa was demi god in 2009 when he finished the war and that's what kept him going on two presidential terms till 2015 and then he dropped from grace 2019 when they came back as i said it was a resounding vote again for primarily for the mr mahindra rajapaksa having seen that pattern i don't rule out at all that there may well come another wave when the sri lankan public suddenly decides no this lot is terrible we need to go back to the rajapaksas and with a new president and prime minister in the coming weeks what are the biggest challenges for whoever takes charge see it depends on who if it is ranil vikramasinghe himself and it is likely to be ultimately everybody in parliament knows this you know no matter what they say publicly he is the one person with the maximum political experience number one he has the maximum experience in multilateral relations he has dealt with the imf extensively in the past now on the personal basis he has excellent relations with many world leaders you need that kind of rapport and that kind of bonhomie if you want to ensure that uh, sri lankan sovereignty is not compromised you know when you're making all these deals because the one thing that everybody is waiting for like vultures right now is sri lanka is a hugely interesting land in terms of strategic location in terms of resources in terms of many many things and it's a democracy you know that's very attractive and it's a part of the bri china's belt and road initiative and that is the precise reason why all these guys are arriving here and if sri lanka is broke and it's going to ask you to restructure the money it owes you or you know and 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 is practically in a position where it you can extricate any favor out of it that's the ideal position for all these countries for sri lanka to be so in those matters i think ranil is a person who will be able to negotiate skillfully because he knows these people he knows what international policy is all about the other persons who are in the running they may all be very well meaning of course they are they all want the best for sri lanka i'm sure and you know some of them are excellent speakers like sajit premadasa if you hear can really work a crowd you know and all that but does he have that kind of experience I, you know point me to one person in parliament who has that kind of experience not a single person you know so um, so i think the big challenge will be the economic crisis of course the biggest challenge is to get that first tranche of uh, you know restructured debt in uh, from those countries the debtor the loan the lender countries and also get some sort of a bailout from the imf that's the biggest and most immediate challenge second biggest challenge for ranil will be to uh, you know pacify and mollify the crowd they made it very clear and they're saying it even now you know that we are not going to accept ranil as a prime minister a president because primarily because even those who like ranil you know on a personal basis are saying primarily because he was not elected to parliament he he lost bitterly at the last election and he has one seat and that is a nominated seat how can he now suddenly become he was acting uh, even to make him prime minister was wrong and now to make him president will be even worse you know but somewhere down the line people are forgetting and i was reminded of this yesterday when i was listening to another sri lankan parliamentarian speak uh, that did you imagine in 19 2019 when um, gotabaya rajapaksa got 52 point something percent 52.5 percent of the vote share and became president did you imagine on that day that today he has 0% of the vote share the same gotabaya right so the same way the man who had 0% of the vote share in 2019 i mean you know you have to also 
allow for some kind of changes and some kind of adjustments and allow him to take on that role simply by looking at his qualifications and examining whether he is suited for the role of dealing with the IMF right now. So that kind of flexibility is not being shown by the crowd. Within parliament, I think they will eventually have to unite over that point. I think that will be a big challenge for Ranil to, to somehow win over the trust and confidence, if not win over the trust and confidence, confidence, at least be able to convince the public, the Sri Lankan voting public that, look, give me a chance. Just give me a chance till August, because August is some sort of a turning point. They have to provide the IMF certain fresh guarantees by then. So at least till then, people have to be patient and they have to give whoever it may be, be it Ranil or be it somebody else. But Ranil's challenge will be this additional challenge in addition to the economic crisis. But all of this means no reduction in pain for the average Sri Lankan anytime soon, right? We're going to see this for a while. Oh, none at all, Arun, none at all. It's practically impossible to live like this. How are they dealing with it? They're dealing with it. From what I hear, many people are cutting down how much they eat, which is really, you know, I mean, it's tragic. Uh, they, they are dealing with it by homeschooling, many of them, because the schools have shut. And uh, I think however they deal with it, the one thing that they should really, they have to have tons of right now is patience. And they have to shake off that edge of anger that leads to vandalism. Because the minute you let that happen, then you will attract actions from other countries and from, you know, around the world, which you will not like. So the Sri Lankans have to be patient. And I can only hope that the food crisis is solved immediately because they're all interlinked. You know, I mean, an auto rickshaw driver, if he doesn't have petrol, he can't, uh, you know, take people on uh, rides. And if he can't uh, give people rides, paid rides, then he can't feed his family. And uh, and even if he somehow musters up enough money to feed his family, sort of the basics that he can get together, goods, the prices of goods have increased by more than 50%. So the first thing that has to be handled is the food crisis uh, so that, you know, Sri Lanka is not staring at starvation. All these opposition politicians, they've been, you know, thundering from the rooftops about Gota should go, Ranil should go, this, that and the other. Look, they were offered positions of responsibility, uh, even while Gota was there, when there was talk of, you know, after Mahinda resigned and they said, let's form a kind of all party administration and all that. At that point in time itself, the last president, Gota by Rajapaksa, offered them uh, places. The opposition said, look, come in and, you know, take up leadership roles and, you know, let's all solve this crisis together. They refused. Now, if you are really so convinced that you are the better answer to leadership and you have the answers to the economic crisis, then why not come in and help your country by joining an interim administration? They didn't do that. A lot of people who we, who, of whom we thought would, you know, come forth enthusiastically to be the presidential candidate, a lot of them are having second thoughts because Arun, at the end of the day, nobody wants the responsibility because these problems, as you point out, are not going to be solved overnight. The Sri Lankans will have to put up with at least two to three years of hardships, of short, uh, shortages, of austerity measures, of higher taxation, you know, and all that kind of thing. So uh, I'm afraid it's not going to be an easy ride for the Sri Lankans. That's something the public has to learn. They have to know that. They have to accept it. You know, uh, you cannot expect somebody to just come in and, you know, do miracles overnight. It's not going to happen. And India's played, like you said, a role in sort of bridging the finances of Sri Lanka so far. But now there's going to be a change in leadership. Um, India could have to provide help again. What does this all do for ties between the two nations? 
I think ties between the two nations are going to remain pretty undisturbed for now. You know, I don't see anything happening overnight. There's not going to be such a radical shift in bilateral and multilateral policies. What I foresee is India's role becoming more important in Sri Lanka, not just because of all the reasons that people tell you, you know, cultural links and historical links and brotherhood and Tamil, not, not that at all. All our neighboring countries, we've always had this, we, India always has this big brother kind of image. People tend to envision it as a bully, you know, of sorts. And I've always advocated that we, you know, tone down that big brother, uh, you know, stance in the neighboring countries if this neighborhood first policy has to be successful. I think given the scenario now where global players, the big lenders will all be circling in on Sri Lanka looking for their pound of flesh in return. I think now India should play the big brother by protecting Sri Lanka. You see, because India has much more of a much, much more clout in the international arena. So I think there India can play a very constructive role, a discrete role, play a big brother role, but not to the advantage of India, but to the advantage of Sri Lanka by ensuring that these international negotiations do not compromise Sri Lanka's sovereignty in any way. Today's episode was produced by Jairaj Singh, Sunai Marathe and Anuja Singh. For a daily spotlight on people, ideas and stories that matter, subscribe to us. We're available on TY+, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts and all other platforms of your choice. For any news tips, email us at tuipodcast at timesinternet.in.